0: You can be seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, we have reached the end of the book of Acts. We have hit the last sermon in a very long series. I don't even want to look back and count how many sermons it took to get through the book of Acts. But soon, this week, uh, I will release a nine-month preaching calendar for you so that you're able to see where we're headed over the next nine months. And that process of figuring that out and picking what comes next has been really difficult because there's a lot to choose from. I, I read this week that there was a magician that took his wife out sweater shopping, and she was taking a really long time, and he finally said, pick a cardigan, any cardigan. <laughs> and uh, when I've been praying about the sermons, I'm like, okay, what are we doing here? And it's almost like the Lord's like, just, just, just pick a book. I mean, there's, they're all good. <laughs> I recommend all of them, but you will see over the next uh, week or so, you'll see a, a sermon schedule released. Well, at the end of the book of Acts, we are struck with sort of figuring out why Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to end the book of Acts the way that he did. It doesn't give you the most, it doesn't give you all the information you would like, my wife will write off an entire good movie if the end doesn't include all of the answers to the questions she was asking throughout. Like, like what happened to so-and-so? They didn't say, the movie's terrible. There are a lot of questions left asked in the book of Acts that aren't completely answered. And this really is God's final biographical inspired glimpse in the life of Paul. And so we're trying to make sense of, well, why does Luke end... This book the way that he does, and there are two themes for sure that we see in this chapter that we see emerging over and over again in the book of Acts. I'm just going to show you those themes and then try to explain what I think God's doing, not only with the last chapter of this book, but just with the book itself. Two things I've noticed in this chapter and throughout the book of Acts uh, completely, and the first one is, is a lot of attention is paid to Paul's productivity, Okay? A lot of attention is paid to Paul's productivity. Really, in the last several chapters, Luke has taken careful uh, aim at showing us just how productive this apostle really was. Can you remember back to Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 where he says... I provided for my own needs by working with my own hands, and not only for my needs, but for the needs of those that were with me. And he says, in addition to that, I did not cease night and day to admonish you with tears. Time and time again, Luke takes special care to point out how productive and Energizer Bunny-like Paul really is. When we're talking about Paul's productivity, I thought of three three things that we would want to notice about it. The first one is just the volume. Paul's productivity is just voluminous. It's also virtuous, and I'll explain that in a moment, but it's also what I would describe as anti-fragile. By voluminous, I mean that Paul's output is simply incredible. Just looking in chapter 28 alone, he's just always doing stuff. Immediately after the shipwreck, we find him in verse 3 of Acts 28, gathering sticks to build a fire for everybody. And then Immediately after that, we see him healing not only one man, but verses 8 through 9 say that he healed many in the village where he was living at that moment. And then as soon as his journey to Rome is completed, we see him immediately meet with various believers and with the Jews, and the chapter ends with Paul just being busy. This is really the last glimpse we have of Paul, the last thing we see from Paul In, say, verse 30 of Acts chapter 28, is him living in a room, paid for at his own expense. So that possibly means that in addition to doing the ministry he was doing, he was back to tent making. He was living in a room, paid for at his own expense, while welcoming all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Last glimpse we get of Paul is of a man who is just unendingly productive. So that's what I mean by his productivity was voluminous. Like he's just always doing stuff. And what I mean by it being virtuous is is that he never manipulated people. His output never cut corners. He says to the Corinthians, you know, I've been careful not to... Not to come to you with persuasive words. I've been careful not to like just, just use my intellect to manipulate you into doing what I want you to do. I've been careful to rely on the power of the Spirit. And that's, these are rare things. To see someone who has a ton of output and that output is virtuous, it's praiseworthy. There, there no cut, there's no corners cut, there's no manipulation and so forth. So Paul's output was, his productivity was voluminous, it was virtuous. What do I mean by anti-fragile? What I mean by that is is that Paul's productivity was such that even when he was put in situations where it would seem he had no chance to do anything, he still did stuff. Paul could produce good works for the Lord in any situation he found himself in. Uh, It wasn't just one explicit thing that Paul did. So when he had a chance to speak in a synagogue, he'd do that and then when he'd get kicked out of the synagogue he'd go somewhere else and speak there but it wasn't only as if he could only do large scale speaking paul went from house to house and ministered to people individually and it wasn't like all he could do was preach and teach he had the ability to serve others with his physical labor he spent time as we said working with his own hands to provide not only for his needs but for the needs of others and then there were times when it seems like okay paul has to take a break he can't possibly do anything while he's in prison Yeah, except write the prison epistles. And there we get Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. And so here is a man who is productive in just an expansive way with complete virtue who's also able to vary what he does according to the circumstances. And if many of you I know, like me, work from home a lot, and you know full well how easy it is to get distracted, or how it feels like you have to have just the right combination of circumstances to do the work that you need to do. Like how many cups of coffee do you have to have? What does the lighting look like? How does the chair need to be positioned? You know, so on and so forth. And here's a man who just rolled with it. And whatever circumstance he was in, he continued to be productive for the Lord. So that's Paul's productivity. and We're going to kind of see how that ties in to the larger theme of Acts, but it's definitely an undeniable, I guess you could say secondary theme in the book. A lot of attention is paid to just his hustle, the amount of work he puts in. Well, the second theme we see in the book of Acts, and also in chapter 28 in specific, is the role of the past in the present. So point one, and they seem to be not related at all, and I grant you that. It's kind of cool, actually, we you'll see in a moment. Point one is Paul's productivity. Point two is the role of the past. Think about the role of the past plays in the book of Acts. It's actually quite remarkable to realize that God designed us to learn and think and perceive in a certain way. Specifically, our understanding of the present depends almost entirely on categories of thought that we've developed in the past. That's actually what thinking and learning and perceiving is. I read a book on what consciousness is about a year ago. It was a bit dense. Uh, My consciousness was disturbed by trying to read a book on the nature of consciousness. But the author of that book, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, his book Maps of Meaning is really about this. The author of that book asserts that essentially what we're doing all the time when we're figuring out current reality is we're putting current experiences into pre-existing categories that we've developed over time that maybe we were taught when we were younger that we learned when we were younger and so on. And so one of the reasons, like, say, for instance, when you're driving home and you don't remember driving home it's because you didn't encounter any new stimulus that required you to put something in a category. So you were sort of, like, not actually conscious in a way, as he describes consciousness. So God designed us to have this relationship with the past where everything we're doing in the present is always, like, put back into categories that we've had established for us In the past. And just incidentally, I think this is thinking about this this week made me realize how important forgiveness is and how devastating bitterness can be. And how what Paul means when he says in Romans 12 that we should renew our minds. It's like, yeah, our past really affects the way we think in the present. But what we see in the book of Acts is really mostly specific to the religious past the religious past of Israel, the religious past of the pagans. We're going to look at the Jews here in a moment, but our text starts to remind us in chapter 28 that Paul is entering a fully pagan world and that that pagan world has a past. And those past categories are affecting the way they think about the present. So, for instance, in verse uh, 4 of chapter 28, Paul's gathering those sticks. And as he's carrying the sticks, a snake... uh, is in this pile of sticks and latches onto his hand. And the native pagans that were there saw the creature hanging from his hand. This is verse 4. And they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, if you're looking at your own Bibles, you might notice that the word justice is capitalized there. I don't know if that's in your translation or not but but the word justice there is actually a reference to the goddess of justice. So these islanders are perceiving Paul through a category of past information. And they're seeing this phenomenon of a snake biting a man who just survived a shipwreck and they're making all sorts of assumptions rooted in their past mythological understandings. They're like this guy's clearly a murderer because if he wasn't if he if because he escaped the sea, and the sea usually judges people, but he escaped that. But the goddess Justice has followed him onto land and caused a snake to bite him and kill him. Well, and then we see in verse 11, another piece of the pagan past affecting Paul's present. It says in verse 11, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. And those twin gods are Castor and Pollux, and there's a whole mythological story behind those. But Luke is sort of subtly showing us that Paul is really getting into the heart of pagan country. And what we have to think about when we think about, what, okay, what's that like and how did Paul deal with that and so on, is what he's doing, And as we see in these passages, is he's dealing with people who have categories of thinking that they developed over centuries and centuries. This is how the past is looming large in Paul's present And then we see Paul deal with the Jews in verses 17 through 27. And when Paul's dealing with the Jews, the past comes up very explicitly. Look at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses, and from the prophets. Do you see the present and past connection there? He's saying, okay, here's your religious past. Here's a bunch of experiences that happened to your forefathers that's been handed down for, say, 13 centuries or so in the case of Moses. And he's presenting Christ through the categories of the past. Well, that's a very interesting thing. At this point, we don't know what the point of that is, except to just notice that it's happening that one of the things we can see that's happening is, is that the Gentiles are at a disadvantage, right? The Gentiles are at a disadvantage because they don't have a past full of the one true God of Israel revealing himself to them in the way that the Jews did. But one of the things we see in this text is, is that the disadvantage the Gentiles face, their past is kind of jacked up with paganism, is not substantially a barrier for God to work, and that the past that Israel experienced was not substantially going to help them believe in Christ. So it's kind of funny, you know, you'd think that, you'd think that the, the Greeks' past would be really onerous on them, and that the Jews' past would be really advantageous to them, but it turns out not to be quite so. And there's all sorts of implications for that. Like, for instance, just because you were faithful ten years ago doesn't mean you'll finish well. And there's all sorts of implications related to Christian parenting and so on and so forth. There's all sorts of implications for a life that started out in the wrong direction, which we'll see in a moment. So there's this past-present thing we see in verse 25. And disagreeing amongst themselves after Paul presented Christ through these past categories of Moses and the prophets, after disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul, and he made one more statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your father's past, through Isaiah the prophet past, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Well, as I mentioned before, productivity of Paul is kind of a major theme in in Acts. Luke talks about it a lot, But, but I mean, my goodness, the whole book of Acts is a constant reference back to the past, specifically Israel's past. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. There are over 30 explicit references to the Old Testament scriptures in the book of Acts and dozens and dozens and dozens more implicit references to the Old Testament scriptures. So we have these two themes. What are we going to do with them? We can see this theme of Paul's productivity is there in the text, and we can see that this theme of the past affecting the present is there in the text. Like, what does it all mean? Well, answer this question. What accounts for Paul's productivity? Why was he so darn pr- productive? How did he just keep, keep on going? What accounts for his energizer bunny apostleship? Well, he answers that question. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he answers that question explicitly. It's like, Paul, why are you so productive? Why did you keep going? Why was your output so voluminous? How was it that your productivity was so virtuous? How was it so anti-fragile that you were able able to constantly adapt and no matter what circumstance you were in, you were able to continue putting things out there for the good of God's people? It's like, how did that work? And Paul answers the question in 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But his grace toward me was not in vain. On contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So what's the answer? What's the thing behind Paul's productivity? It's God. It's God's power. It's God's power at work behind Paul's productivity. And what's the thing that explains all this stuff about the past? What's the point of all this stuff in the past? Well, the point is is that God had been working for centuries and centuries in the past to create categories of thinking so that when Christ would emerge on the scene, people would know that he was the chosen one. So what you've got is two themes, past, productivity, but they're both explained by the same thing. They're both just revealing one thing, and that is God at work. God is at work in the productivity of Paul. God is at work in the past. The point of the book of Acts, I think, can be summarized as this. There is a God who is the God of the Bible who has all the power. He has a purpose to make much of Christ. And because he has all the power, his purpose will succeed. That's my summary syllogism for the book of Acts. There's a God who has all the power. There's a God who has a purpose for all of that power. And because he has all the power... He'll get what he wants. So when we talk about God working, for instance, in the life of Paul, we could point to all sorts of really cool things. There's a, there's a verse where Paul says that he is filled with the very affections of Christ for the people that he's caring for. It's like what explains the productivity of Paul? God's power, how did it work? Like, how, did, how did God's power work in Paul's life? One thing is he made Paul love people really deeply and sincerely. He says the love of Christ compels me. Another thing is that Paul attributes also in 1 Corinthians 15 to his productivity is is that he believes in the resurrection. He believes in the future rewards that will come from faithful service. And so how how did God work in Paul's productivity specifically? He made him loving. He also gave him faith to believe that this life is not all there is. And it gave him faith to believe that whatever he did in this life would be light and momentary in terms of the difficulty compared to the surpassing weight of glory that awaited him. So God's working in Paul. What's Paul's productivity pointing to? It's pointing to God's power. It's pointing to God's productivity. It's pointing to God's purpose. And then we see all of these references to the past. And what's the thing we're supposed to really pull from that? Well, one of the things we're supposed to really pull from that is is that God has been working faithfully for centuries and centuries and centuries. Even before time began, God has been working to make much of Christ On the earth, you know, 13 centuries or so uh, prior to when Paul is sitting down with these Jews in Rome, he's 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 telling them about Moses. It's like, what is he telling them about Moses? How is he using Moses to connect to Christ? One of the things he could have done was just read from Deuteronomy 18:15, where Moses says, "The Lord your God." Now, think about this: thousand a thousand plus years ago prior to Paul. So now 3,000 plus years from from us. Moses stood up before the people and said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. Just as you desire the Lord of your God, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. What's what's Moses saying there? The people encountered the unmediated holiness of God. It scared them. And they said, we need a mediator. We need someone to stand between us and this fierce holiness—we don't, we, we can't, we can't stand in the presence of this fire. And they, they called out for a mediator thousands of years ago. All of this was because God was powerfully working in the past to make much of Himself through Jesus. And the Lord said, "They are right." The Lord says to Moses, "They are right in asking for that." They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And later in Deuteronomy, Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. The day is coming. When all of this law isn't outside in, it's inside out, the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul that you may live. So centuries and centuries and centuries before Paul sat in a crowded room with a group of Jews, God had been working carefully, wisely, perfectly through history to bring these people to a place where they had categories for who Christ was. It says also that he reasoned from the prophets. And I mean, imagine one of the places he turned was Isaiah 9-6. You know, for unto us a child is born. Again, centuries and centuries before this moment, God was already working. Now, here's the cool thing. We haven't talked about this very much. But not only was God at work in Israel's past, but God was also at work in the pagan past. Rome itself, we haven't talked about any of this as far as I remember, was named after Romulus. And Romulus was the brother of Remus, twin brothers. And here's the myth of Remus and Romulus. Here's the myth that the Romans thought about the founders of their city. They were born of a virgin who was overcome and impregnated by a god and then cast into the wilderness because a king wanted to kill them. That's the story of Romulus and Remus. So what we have in Acts is a God who works. We have a God of incredible power who works. And he works not only in his People, the Jews' past, but he works even in the pagans' development of their past so that by the time Paul reaches Rome, they are well familiar with the idea that there could arise someone born of a virgin, conceived by God, who could rule over a city, a righteous city, a city of perfection. This is, this is what Acts is telling us. In the big things, God works in in the big and the small developments of history over hundreds of years with perfect skill. He works his divine providence to do one thing, one thing mainly, to make much of Christ. And with Paul's productivity, we can say, and here's not a big thing. Here's a small thing. Here's a guy who probably actually was a small guy, we think. And here's this man who just keeps showing up and enduring, and producing, and working with joy and diligence. And we say, "Oh, no, 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 no. we don't. We see the same God at work in the man." So we've got a God who works in centuries, and we've got a God who works in individuals. We've got a God over history. We've got a God over a man like Paul, a man or woman like you. That's the big theme behind these two smaller themes. Let me repeat it again. The God of the Bible is the one true God and has all the power. This is one of the major themes in the book of Acts. So much of the book of Acts comes down to displaying the power of God. After all, the disciples are told in the very beginning, stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And so page after page, week after week, as we have gone through the book of Acts, we have seen that God has power over language, over the Jews, over the Gentiles, over prison guards, over seismic plates. He's the God of earthquakes. Over prison locks, over the sea, over demons, over disease, over death itself. And there's probably some beautiful mythological secondary meaning to the idea that Luke chooses to include, because think of all the things he didn't include, that Luke chooses to include this sweet little moment when the serpent bites God's servant and the serpent is cast into the fire. This is the God we serve, a God who orchestrates reality at that beautiful, poetic level. So God has all the power. And one of the cool moments or cool pieces of the book of Acts is that this is the first time we get to see God versus the pagan gods. We we get a few glimpses of that in the Old Testament. For instance, Elijah on Mount Carmel But this is the first time, by going to the Gentiles, we get to see the showdown. We get to see the God of the Bible against Zeus and Apollos and even Caesar. And we see this one beautiful conclusion. The God of the Bible is the one true God and he has all the power. The second thing is is that God is using that power for a very specific purpose to make much of Christ. What is God doing with his unlimited power? What is God doing with his unlimited power to work in lives, to work in centuries, to work in countries and kings? The one thing, above all things he's doing, is to bring Jesus Christ to the forefront of humanity and to put the spotlight on him so that every eye will see Every tongue confess, every knee bow and say, he's the one. He's always been the one. He was always going to be the one. And every tiny brick of human history has been built up to tell us that one thing. So God is the, has all the power. He's using all that power to present Christ as central to all of humanity. And the third piece of the syllogism is since God has all the power, his purpose will stand, his purpose and his purpose alone. Now, I just gave you the unifying theory that makes sense of all things everywhere at all times. If you ever wonder what is happening in the world, the answer is always God is showing his power by accomplishing his purpose to make much of Christ amongst all peoples. It's the one thing you can count on. This is what God will always be doing. Until the end of this age, God will always be doing this, and God will be doing this after that as well. Now, that's, it's incredible to have been given a basic key to understanding the entire world. But that's what we have. God has given us the key to understanding everything. It's all about God showing his power to accomplish his purpose to make Christ central to all people. Now, let's talk about how do we apply this. Well, there are three basic ways to live in light of this truth. Three basic potential ways to respond to the sweeping theme. Now, I really ask you to pay attention is that there's some nuance here. It's very important that you hear it. The first way to live in response to all this is to deny it, deny that God exists, or that the God of the Bible exists, or to deny that he has unlimited power, and to just pursue power and purpose elsewhere. It's like one way to live would be what we might call the pagan mistake, the pagan error. And that is to just say, no, I mean, even if this is a real God, he's not the God, there's a bunch of gods, and a bunch of them have power. This is the atheist mistake to deny that there is a God, let alone that he has power. So, one way to live in response to this news that God has all the power, he has a clear purpose, and so forth, is to say, no, not true. And the Bible would say that's a very foolish thing to do. And I don't imagine there are many folks here who have gotten up on Sunday morning uh around 10 a.m and and forsook all the other opportunities available at 10 a.m i don't imagine there are many people here who are in that camp but maybe you are but there's a second camp and i am concerned that some of you might be in this camp and that is this is very important to acknowledge the god of the bible and to agree that he has all the power but to foolishly expect that god is going to use his power to accomplish your purposes That feels more like the shoe that fits, doesn't it? This is, I think, what you could say is the Jewish error. They acknowledged, and this is what we see, I think, in the book of Acts, as well as the Gospels. They acknowledge that there is the one true God and that he has all the power, but then they expect him to use his power to accomplish their purposes, whatever those purposes are, their political purposes, their nationalistic purposes, whatever Their personal purposes. And I feel like this is probably, if we're wrong, this is where we're wrong. We have failed to understand that the truths are coupled together. God's power is absolute, and his purposes get all of his power. His power is not for rent, his power is not for negotiation. His power is not for our purposes. God's power is for His purposes. This seems to be the place where many people who would be in the, you know, the, the vertical of monotheistic Judeo-Christian belief. This seems to be where many people go wrong. Is to acknowledge the God of the Bible to acknowledge his uniqueness, his preeminence, and that he alone has power, and then to spend basically their whole qu- Christian lives, and I, I use that with quotes, expecting God to use all of his power to help them accomplish their agendas and their purposes. So that's the second possibility. The third possibility is the right one, and that is to acknowledge God's power and his purpose and surrender to him and live in harmony with him by relying on his power to fulfill his purpose through us. This is the way of Paul. This is the way of Moses. This is the way of the prophets. This is the true way. This is the way. So you might say that the first category is a kind of Gentile error. It doesn't even acknowledge that God is special or that he has all the power. You might say the second category is a Jewish error. It says, yeah, God has the power. Yeah, he's the God. And now he needs to like, get to work, like making sure that I have the things that I want. But the Christian life is in this third category. that says God has all the power and he has a purpose for all of it. And I'm going to join him in his purpose. And that's what we see in the life of Paul. That's how we see Paul's story end. Because at the end of the day, that's the end of every story. That's the only end that matters. All of the other details, like we all want to know how he died, right? Right? Uh, we all want to know what he did after this and so on. It's like Those are like inconsequential details compared to the one statement Luke made at the end. Paul lived his life on mission for Jesus. That's all that you need to know. And the truth is, that's all that anyone needs to know about us. And I would hope that that's all anyone does know about us. So-and-so lived their life on mission for Jesus. So if you commit to serve him, you can be sure that he will continue to supply you with the strength you need. Now, I want to revisit a couple things and, and hit another level Of specificity in application. Let's revisit this anti fragile quality of Paul and say, Some of you, for some reason or another, have found yourself in a circumstance or a set of circumstances that are extremely limited. A significant amount of freedom has been removed from your life because of some circumstance. Maybe you're sick, maybe you're pregnant. Maybe you've made some commitments to your family that just have to be the main thing. Sometimes God allows sickness or other hard circumstances to dramatically change the scope of what we are able to do. But we need to remember that while our circumstances might limit us, the power of God at work in us remains unlimited. And no matter how small the cell is, that we might be occupying for this particular season of life, the power of God to work in us to produce things that go far outside of the cell, boy, that's undeniable. A lot of theologians think that Ephesians is actually Paul's better cleaned up version of Romans, meaning he did it all in a sweet, succinct way not arguing at any level that Romans is imperfect. But a lot of people look at Ephesians and say, oh my goodness, you just did Romans in a beautiful, quick, poetic kind of way because he was in prison. And prison will do that to you. Suffering will do that to you. Constraint will do that to you. Weakness will do that to you. So I want to speak to to some of you who are just in a circumstance of limitation and you say, the productivity that I see on display in Paul's life, there's one piece of it that seems most relevant to me and that is the times when he didn't get to do what he wanted to do, the times he was forced into tightness, constraint, the times where his options were limited. I just want you to know, yeah, God's power, all of it is there for you. And what you could find, and this is specifically to people who are suffering, what you can find in these moments is is stop making your suffering your purpose. Stop making it your identity and and get back on board with God's purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose is to make much of Christ. So you and your little cell-like circumstances, you just make much of Christ. And you will find God's power at work in you to will and to work according to, what's Paul say? According to his good purpose. So God's power is at work even in our suffering. Remember, there's a time when Paul was restrained, constrained, limited by something he just refers to as a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And he does not like this limitation. He does not accept it quickly. He says, I prayed three times that the Lord would remove this limitation from me And the Lord responded in saying, my grace is sufficient for you. For when you are weak, I am strong. So I wanted to speak to those people specifically in sort of a a limited role and saying, you know what, you're not limited if you follow God's purpose because then you have all of God's power. He'll just do all sorts of things through you. In your little season of limited choices, you might find yourself to be wildly productive. For the purpose of Christ. And then I want to talk about the past. We've talked about God working in the past. And I want to make sure you understand that God has always been working in your past. If you told someone the story of Romulus and Remus, they'd be like, ew, paganism. It's like, yeah, and God's big Some things in our past are relatively easy to reconcile with God's purposes. There are many things that God has done in our lives that we're able to say, man, God just did that. His kindness toward me in that moment was obvious. But let's remember that in Israel's past, there was great sin, and in Paul's past, there was great sin, and in the pagans' past, there was piles and piles of idolatry, and God was able to use it all to accomplish his purposes. So is there anything in your past that seems to be a constant burden on your present? Is there anything in your past that seeks to sort of reframe the way you view God, the way you view yourself in Christ? Is there a category from your past that kind of keeps grabbing your present? Maybe there was an event in which it seemed that God had abandoned you, or maybe there was an event in which you know for sure you did abandon God. Many years ago, well before I was ever in Kansas City, a sister in Christ came up to me after a sermon and asked to speak with me. And she's like, we kind of need to be, you know, some privacy, it's like, okay. So we went over to one corner and she confessed that in her youth, she had two abortions and she had never told anybody. And she understood now, now, that she had voluntarily of her own free will taken the life of two of her own children. And she stood in front of me to tell me this. She hadn't told anyone, not even her husband. And you know what I got to do in that moment? Pretty pretty cool thing. I got to pronounce God's deep, expansive grace upon her that Christ bought for her on the cross and to tell her that even this great sin could be used by God to make much of Jesus not only in her life but in the lives of others and to show her that you just get to know the grace of God better because of this. I got to, I got to pronounce truth over this hurting woman and say, though your sins are like scarlet, Jesus Christ died on a cross to make them white as snow. And so, you know, maybe nothing as dramatic as that is in your life. Maybe something more dramatic than that is in your life. Maybe there's a relationship you were engaged in that was inappropriate. Maybe you were look back now and really regret the way you raised your kids maybe you regret some season of foolishness or rebellion let's just deal with this right now if you have chosen to make Jesus Christ the payment for your sinfulness and chosen to make him the person in charge of your life then I can tell you a few things. God has chosen you before the foundation of the world and the sin that haunts you is covered and cleansed and washed away and cast into a sea of forgetfulness. And so I'm, I love talking about God's work in history, right? I love talking about God's work in the productivity of Paul, but I feel like I ought to talk a little bit about God's work in your past, and God's work in your productivity and say, all that power, the same power we saw on display through centuries and centuries of skillful providential guiding of human events, of weather patterns, of famines and floods, all that skill, all that power, all that wisdom, it's all in work in you if you are in Christ Christ. All that grace to overcome all of those errors, it's all for you if you are in Christ. All of that power to make you far more productive than you could possibly imagine, it's there for you if you are in Christ. So today as we partake in this table, we just want to celebrate the power of God at work to accomplish the purpose of God, to make much of Christ If you're a follower of Jesus, would you come to this table this morning and make much of Christ with a heart of gratitude as you partake in the cup and the bread and say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for letting me join in your great purpose to make much of Jesus. Let me pray and then you come.